This episode of the Randy Russell podcast was brought to you by this joke. A bear walks into a bar and says, give me a whiskey and a cola. Why the big paws? asked the bartender. The bear shrugged. I'm not sure. I was born with them. Find this in future episodes at rspeen.com and Apple Podcasts. Questions or comments, email us at rrpodcast2000 at gmail.com. Our guest host, Robert Couchman III, a.k.a. Professor Gizmo, is still recovering from a troubled youth, not a vegetarian. A dog lover, has a deviated septum, can curl his tongue and dances and whistles, but neither well. Welcome to the Randy Russell Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Couchman. It's my pleasure to introduce you to our guest today, Randy Russell, the leader of his one-man dance crew called Crew Socks. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. <clears throat> You're welcome. Nice to... Uh, want to hear, hear about, more about... No, we'll, we'll skip the Crew Socks. <laughs> That's... <laughs> And people are getting a little tired of that subject. Because of the cruise or the socks? The, 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 the dancing. You know? <laughs> <laughs> people, it's always dancing. People, when, when, you know, people get together with me. Talk about something else other than the dancing. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, how you doing? I'm I'm well, thank you. Doing? And what would you like to talk about besides? Well, music? you you well, I, we could start out. You brought me some honey today, which I really appreciate. And those are from your own bees, I presume. Yes, they they are. That's from last year's honey harvest. We harvested about I don't know, hundred pounds or something like that last year, and uh, from our, I think we had. Six hives at the end of the year. Three of those have survived this harsh winter. So we're hoping for great things. Six hives. Yes. And how, how many pounds of honey? A couple hundred pounds. That's, I don't remember exactly. A, yeah, that's a lot. That's... In, in a good year, uh, with a good beekeeper and good conditions, you could, uh, in Wisconsin, you could harvest as much as 200 pounds per hive. Oh, wow. So, um, so those, I mean, under ideal conditions, those six hives could produce 1,200 pounds of honey. So you have to make a lot of oatmeal. No, I, I don't have any trouble, trouble getting rid of honey. <laughs> it, goes fa it goes fast, and it's expensive now. And, um, and, also, and also, yeah, I've, I've noticed that, you know, I, I, I'm not a real connoisseur because I'm just because of what it costs, you know, to try mm -hmm. different ones. And I love, I love when I once in a while I have different types of honey, um, noticing the differences. Um, I was I was cat sitting for a friend, and um, they brought they brought some honey from Japan mm. back, and uh, and they I think yeah no well I don't know, maybe they didn't bring it from Japan. I mean, I'm getting mixed up. Um, or maybe they did. I, I don't remember. But mm -hmm. they 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 had like a lot of different types of honey there, and uh, 
I was tr- so I was trying some while I was cat sitting, and also the one of the this w- woman who I know is a, is, had bees mm-hmm. in, at the house, so I was just kind of like observing the the hive there. And what do you, what do you call the structure that that what's the, isn't there a name for that? That well, the hive is the structure, but the skep. Maybe you're thinking of bee skep or yeah, bee skep. The, the wooden, yeah, the wooden. The well, there no, those are the wooden. I mean, the little classic sort of box-like structures that you see uh, are those are hive bodies, yeah, and that typical hive body in well, pretty much around the world is called a Langstroth uh, hive body. So those most of those typically white boxes that you see out there with movable frames, those are Langstroth, okay. named for their inventor. So, and there are other styles. There's the Ware and the, um, let's see, there's the AZ hives, which are used, which come out of, um, where's our first lady from? Uh Slovenia, right? So Slovenia has a really deep tradition of beekeeping, and each each village has its own sort of communal house that contains multiple hives, and their their hives are a little different. Instead of accessing the frames from the top, as we do with the Langstroth hives, these open sort of like a closet door, and the and the frames in there are like file hanging file folders, and you can extract them from the rear really interesting uh, alternate system. Each of those villages has its own appointed beekeeper. He's given, I think it's always a male, but he's when he's sort of commissioned as the beekeeper for the village, he's given a, a vest that's um, made up of this honeycomb fabric. And I think he's he, there's a hat that goes with the uniform. This is position of high honor in the in the community yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so if so look, if i was gonna if i decided i wanted to have bees mm-hmm. like that's that's what i think is a good like how, can you tell me what i have to where i start or what do i go because I, I was living in a place like obviously here where I live in, in an apartment building, I, I couldn't. But I was living in a place the last time I lived in Milwaukee where there was a big yard. Mm-hmm. And the um, person there, was the, the super there, had chickens. Mm-hmm. And um, so, I mean, and it, I could have done it. I mean, I, if I, if I would have decided to, as far as being allowed to, even though I was sure. rent, renting there. Right. Because they were, the people were very nice who owned the place. and. So that so it seems very possible in that way. So like, yeah, absolutely. I mean, actually, um, I think this structure does it have a flat roof? Um, oh, the plaza. The, oh, the 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 plaza. Um, yeah, yeah. There is a flat. Fl- well, I don't know. I, I well, I'm imagining just yeah. looking at the exterior that it's got a flat roof. Yeah, it does so, have a flat. It does have a flat roof. I don't know about access to it. Well, somebody's got to have access to that. You know, there's typically there's air conditioning units and various things up there. And so there are, you know, around this city, there are urban hives on top of buildings like this. So it's not out of the question that you would actually have hives here. Oh, so like on top of um, buildings. So yeah, because so the cool. bees are flying uh, around, you know, up to two and a half mile radius to collect pollen and honey. 
So the home, it's not as though you would have to have gardens in the immediate vicinity of the hive location. So they, they would find um, fly out in the city. In fact, I just read a really interesting article that people are looking at bees as a sort of data collection system for pollutants in the urban areas. So by because they're pretty specific, so two and a half mile radius, maybe smaller, you could collect the honey from a particular hive in the city and analyze uh, the contents of that honey for, say, lead, pesticide, other contaminants and the, where the bees are actually, you know, bringing that in and concentrating it and offering to it. But you were asking about what it would oh, take, yeah. assuming that you had, um, you know, mm -hmm. that you had access to, the, say, the roof of this building. You'd want to get the basic woodenware, which would include a bottom board and then a couple of deep boxes that would contain the actual brood, uh, that is the young um, larva, eggs larva, and young bees. And then above that would be just shallower boxes with frames that are called supers. And that's where if the bees had extra honey to store, they would store it. So that, you know, you'd spend maybe three, $400 to get that equipment. Mm -hmm. And then you'd need bees. You purchase bees in two different ways, either as packages, which means basically a bunch of bees that have been scooped up and put together with a queen with a with a queen that's been bred and you would dump that package into the hive and um they would the queen will over time will begin to lay uh eggs and the the bees in the package would attend to those and over time you would actually build a working colony alternatively you can buy what's called a nuclear hive or nuke and that is a small, sort of a compact hive that's a fully functioning colony. It would have worker bees, a, a fertile queen, and brood, eggs and brood of all different stages. So it's a little miniature hive, fully functioning. And um, oh, wow. so you could buy, those are available this time, starting about this time of year, those are available in Wisconsin. Um, right now, a two or three, I think a three pound package would, which would be would comprise about, I think around twenty thousand bees and a queen, would be uh, would cost you around a hundred and forty dollars or something like that. And a nuke, which again would comprise about the same number of bees, I think twenty thousand or something like that, but a fully functioning sort of microcosm, would be about around one hundred and seventy dollars. Okay, yeah, that's that's pretty affordable then. Yeah. Yeah, that's. What what like what uh, what's this kind of success rate you have or, or failure rate generally or well, that people have? That's a really good question. Um, so uh, overwintering, so the winter is the difficult getting the uh, bee colony through a Wisconsin winter is really the. So is there kind of a is there a season that where you would start at a particular time? And yes, absolutely. So bees. I mean, if you're starting from scratch right now, um, they're the first bees that would be available to purchase commercially to start that colony. Actually, some packages have just been delivered in the last week or so, but this period from now through. 
Oh, mid-May is most of the bees would be available. And most of those bees are actually coming off of the almond pollination in, in California. So that's there's a commercial aspect to their availability. So the almonds have been in bloom. The migratory beekeepers have imported millions and millions of bees, semi-loads of bees, to set down in the almond orchards to pollinate the almond orchards. Mm. And that bloom period is relatively short, a couple of weeks. Once they've done their job of pollinating the almond orchards, then those truckloads of bees have gone back to wherever they started from, some cases Northern California, some places across the United States. But now those beekeepers have an excess of bees. They've expanded their population so that they can provide those pollinators to the uh almond groves, but once they're finished doing that pollination and they, they have produced the income for the beekeeper, um, sort of rental fees, um, the, the beekeeper no longer wants to maintain those huge colonies of bees. And so those excess bees are then packaged up and trucked across the country to provide replacement or new bees for beekeepers across the Country. So the availability is based on, to some extent, the conditions here in the Midwest, but really pretty much driven by the fact that those bees have done their job in the pollination of the almond orchards and now are available to be sold here. Oh, in the, so, in yeah, the so it's depending. So then the price would be depending on those, that availability. and Yeah, they simply, right. And they're simply, uh, they're, they're simply are really are not, you know, there probably are some bees available. Very few bees would be available until after the pollination work is done. Mm -hmm. Then over the course of the summer, if, I mean, there will be some bees uh, available locally and also, there will be bred queens available for people that need to replace, don't need to start a whole new colony, but need to expand just using a, a fertile queen. And queens, a bred queen in Wisconsin last year sold for about $35. Okay. So then what's the season like uh, as far as... So what's happening now in the beehive, so let, let's assume that you haven't established the beehive and they've managed to make it through the polar vortex. Um, what's happening now inside the hive is that as the first bits of pollen come in, and around here, that would be right now, it appears that would probably be pussy willow, maybe some other sources. Uh, not too long from now, dandelions will mm -hmm. provide sources of the pollen, which is protein. And that, the entry of the protein into the hive, pollen, is sets off a whole series of events that um, it, so the queen begins to lay. She really hasn't probably been laying any or very few eggs at all. But now, as the indicators of uh, good fortune come in, all this activity will start. And so she starts to lay eggs. And now what are called the winter bees that have overwintered from last fall who are actually old, they're octogenarian bees, they're six months old. Um, when the pollen comes in, it actually triggers a switch that turns them back into, effectively back into nurse bees, and they actually can care for these young as they're born. But the minute, the very minute at which 
they are turned from old bees, winter bees, into new nurse bees. That there's a 35-day clock that begins, and they will only live from that point forward. Although they've lived six months up to that time, they will only live for another 35 days. Oh, wow. So it's important. So this is a really critical period because that food needs to keep coming in, so that this, uh, so that these old bees can thermoregulate, keep that hive at 95-degree temperature inside, so that they incubate and form new worker bees that can then take on the, the various tasks inside the hive before this group of old bees dies off in 35 days. So what's critical for the beekeeper is making sure that as much as possible those conditions are met because uh, if, the, if we get bad weather or something affects the pollen flow or the nectar flow, we have to be there to back that up so that the nutrition is available so that the hive doesn't collapse at this critical time. All right, yeah. So what can you do if there's, yeah, if the, if the pollen's not available then? Well, we feed pollen patties, which are uh, uh, made up of soy flour and a bunch of other ingredients that essentially mimic the nutritional value of the pollen. And then we're right now we're feeding, um, over the winter we've been feeding just dry sugar uh, as a, to supplement the honey stores that they have put by. And then just right now, we're starting to feed a one-to-one simple syrup, one part sugar, one part water. And uh, that will, it provides carbohydrates. It also stimulates wax production so that they, because the bees have to build out the wax on the, if the the foundational um Frames are not fully built out. They have to build those wax structures out and then use, create wax to cap off the larval cells. And as honey is produced and dried out, then the, when the honey's dried down to around 16, 17% moisture content, then they cap those cells off so that the, that honey is preserved. Oh, yeah, that's... That's pretty. It's pretty involved. Pretty involved. So, so bees that are in nature do essentially the same thing, though. But when you're keeping bees, you're kind of helping them. Well, so I was telling Mark earlier that that so honeybees are really they're first they're non-native. These this is a non-native. These are in effect an uh, an invasive species, right? Mm-hmm. And and. Uh, uh, most from mostly from Africa, and then up into Europe, and then eventually to the U.S. But um, so they're really it's it's well to think of honeybees as agricultural animals that we're managing okay. now. They're yeah. up until maybe twenty years ago or so when um, some of the big uh, the varroa mite in particular and some other viral invaders came along to really affect the, um, the, the health of the honeybee population. There were more feral uh, honeybee colonies in the U.S. Um, there are still some, but, um, but they really have decreased because of this, um, the pressure on the colonies by the the varroa mite and the fact that the varroa mite is a vector for uh, viruses that they don't that they haven't evolved good um, management techniques for that is so um, so I don't know if I answered your question or not. 
Oh yeah, yeah, no, yeah. So, yeah, you know, so, so they're, they're, I didn't even realize that they're non-native. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there are that's... lots of native pollinators and lots of native bees, but the honeybees, honeybees. Are, are not, uh, yeah, not native to the Americas. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, so, um, for so some, someone like me who has trouble keeping plants alive, mm -hmm. I, I'm just kind of wonder, wondering how much, how, what, what success I might have, or, or. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's it's a it's a bit of a tall climb, honestly. It's a it, it you know in the in the distant past, like I said, twenty thirty years ago, um, there it was a much more passive um, enterprise than it is today. It required much less, really, no integrated pest management to keep. I mean, they really managed to do well on their own, oh, yeah. and uh, and now combination of the varroa mites, certain viruses, and pesticides. The you know the pr proliferation of pesticides mm -hmm. um, has put a lot of pressure on the honeybee, and so it does take a lot of management, honestly, um, and even some good luck to be successful um, as a beekeeper. On the other hand, they're really remarkable creatures, and they do provide this inroad into the uh, into the natural world that's quite remarkable. Are there are there um, any places or people locally who are would help? Yeah, good like question. Absolutely, yes. So right here, just this year, there's a group called the Milwaukee uh, Urban Beekeeping Association. And uh, they meet on North Avenue at the library on North Avenue. What is it? The across from Beads and Bar. All oh, right, yeah, North Avenue. And uh, and so there, uh, there's there's a couple of really capable people, um, Charlie Keenan and Robert McKinney, that are you know uh, sort of that that are the uh, mentors of that club, and they represent a lot of historical experience, um, and the. And so, and beekeepers help each other. Then in, in Waukesha, we have the Milwaukee-Waukesha Beekeepers Association, which is, I think, someplace around 20 years old, maybe older than that. A really solid organization um, with uh, our, our, the president of that club is a commercial beekeeper with 500 hives. And so there's a lot of collective knowledge. And it's a as a community, uh, beekeepers are very collaborative group. So there's a mm -hmm. lot of um, support and exchange of knowledge, and and which is really invaluable. Um, and then internationally, there's a lot of of both scientific and other efforts, commercial efforts that provide you know do data collection and research um, and uh, you know that at connect beekeepers both the small beekeepers providing data information and gaining you know knowledge as these research projects move forward so all right yeah do you um do you have uh, any favorites as far as the type type of honey oh hmm. that's a really good question is there is there there's different like the i'm, I'm always interested in the in the different what makes different 
flavors or what it makes it taste so differently. Yeah, so those are, I mean, typically those are separated. Those are called varietals. And, and um, so to get um, the different flavors from honey, you would would pretty much depend on what nectar, where the, what the nectar source was for that. Um, so early in the spring here, um, the maples, uh, honey locusts, um, really, the bulk of the nectar come from trees, from perennials. And uh, so those would be the early flows. And some people that sell varietals uh, would collect, would be conscious of what's in bloom and would essentially stop the collection process, that is, take the frames of the, that, those frames of honey out when they knew that particular nectar oh, flow was yeah. over and extract that and catalog those. So later in the season, it'll be, you know, clovers and, I mean, and around the world, you were talking about the Japanese honey. I can't even imagine what, you know, what varietals would be available. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, right now there would be in California, there will be huge amounts of almond nectar honey because they're right. just uh, these... California produces something like 84% of all of the almonds produced in the planet. And it's just wall-to-wall, -wall, miles and miles and miles of, of almond trees. So there, that varietal would be easily available. Mm -hmm. do, you, do, you have, do you have particular favorites you've noticed over? I, I can't over say. Time? I mean, I really like... Uh, no, I can't say that I do. I'm not enough of an expert uh, to offer a... Uh, answer to that. I hope, yeah, I hope I was right about the Japanese honey. I might have just <laughs> made, made, <laughs> might have made it up. It's a good story. No, they uh, one time they did go to Japan, and <clears throat> there was some you know, part of it was like looking into ceramics, and but also they're really you know into honey, and so um, I kind of probably put two things together, and yeah, that's that's how. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's how, that's how um, weird stories start, just right. by getting being confused. Right, yeah. right, yes. <laughs> People will con be contacting us. We've got to find that Japanese honey. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> do, do, you, um, do you do anything other, similar to keeping bees as far as other um, agricultural things or animals? Uh, not currently, no. We, Susie and I have done... You know, we've we've raised dairy goats at one time in our life, and we oh, goats and and actually, Susie's re-entering the poultry business right now. She's just she's got I, I think a dozen chickens ordered for delivery in early April. So, um, so we'll be adding that to our oh, chicken. Yeah, that's 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 exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was like living in various places where when. It started to be a kind of a fad of having chickens in urban settings, which is it's kind of great. Like it was in New York and Brooklyn, and started noticing chickens around. People had a little space. Yeah, yeah. So that's, I like that trend. And um, but it was it was fun when I lived in the place where we had chickens in our in our yard. Mm -hmm. My cat didn't like them. Though. No. <laughs> did, 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 did they tangle the cats and the... No, well the cat was inside but oh, okay. he, he would look out at them and they, they would come up on the porch and 
um, he, he let the, the uh, super there who, who who kept the chickens, he let them run around free part of the right. day. And it said they'd come up on the porch where my back door was and sit on the on the railing <laughs> and the cat would look out because they, they were as big as he he was. Sure. And it, it made him nervous. <laughs> For good so reason. Like big, yeah. Large yeah. birds. <laughs> Beaks. Yes. Beaks and claws. Well, I'm gonna um I'll I'll, I'll talk to them where I live here and we'll right. talk about it. <laughs> yes. Getting yes. up on the roof. There. Yeah. But so how, it, do you do you um, have any idea like to what extent um an ur a place would be too urban to have bees, like say if you're in Manhattan in New York. Well, it's really interesting. There's a story uh, recently about a couple of um, cops in Manhattan that are beekeepers, and they also collect swarms. There was, I, I think, the Post earlier this year had a picture of a swarm that had landed on the umbrella on a, like a food cart in downtown Manhattan. And, and oh. so these guys, these two cops get called in when there's a swarm that needs to be handled. But they have... A series of hives, uh, rooftop hives in Manhattan, and uh, so I don't think. I mean, yeah, I don't think there's a setting that would be, uh, you know, impossible to have bees in. Um, so yeah, yeah I guess there. I mean, there are some. I mean, there's plants growing. There's well, there's Central yeah, Park, yeah, right? Yeah, and, yeah. Central and, Park. If you're, yeah, being two two miles from Central Park, you're. It's, it's a pretty big radius. Yes, yes. And Milwaukee's and got lots of, you know, boulevard plantings and parks mm -hmm. and people have plantings in their yards. So there's a there's a variety of of uh nectar and pollen to be collected. So I don't I don't think there's yeah, I don't think there's a limit on urban beekeeping. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when when you said that about rooftops that I was thinking about you know when I with the we you know the satellite photos now that you can mm -hmm. look on and the Google like the Google satellite photos. It's I, I love looking at the at urban place like especially in Manhattan just because it's so intensely urban and and you can get in so close and then you realize these buildings that that you might have walked by all the time and you see what's on top of them. Right, and right. You go, oh, there's a pool on that one. Uh -huh. oh, there's like a sun deck there. Yes, yes. <laughs> and yes. so they, it's, there's a like, whole different world of what's happening on top of buildings. Right, and, right. And, and it should be more. I mean, I mean, it would be nice if there's a, it's just wasted space at a lot of, a lot of times. Yeah, there's bees on top of, uh, I know Marquette, there's, there's, uh, there are bees on top of some of the Marquette buildings, and uh, and actually, um, so Charlie Keenan, who's a avid beekeeper and uh, uh, one of the principals in the Milwaukee Urban Beekeeping Association, he I think now has a, actually a paid position with the uh, Milwaukee Park System to keep bees at the golf courses, and uh, so. You know, so there are a lot, probably a lot more bees in the city. I mean, managed bees in the city than one might imagine. Oh yeah, that's a, yeah. The golf courses are a big, big area. Mm -hmm. so I guess there's criticized sometimes golf courses are for the use of pesticides. pesticides. So. Right, but this is one. I think this is one of really the positive aspects of this is that <clears throat> that 
by keeping bees on the golf courses, it's a way to sensitize. I mean, because people get engaged, like, oh, okay, now we've got these bees here. What are they doing? And mm -hmm. what are the impacts on the health of the beehive? And and so, um, you know, so I think there's an opportunity to s find common ground to see, oh, because some of the impact, a lot of the impact of pesticides and herbicides on bees can be ameliorated or managed by just wiser use of the, by timing, time of day. The bees do not fly during the day. So pesticide applications late evening, you know, early morning are, have much less impact than pesticide applied say, during the day when the bees are out collecting pollen. So, oh, yeah. That's a, yeah, that's interesting, just knowing their the timing of it. Right. Yeah, okay. So, and and uh, as far as the season goes, when you get around towards, you get toward winter, mm -hmm. then what do you, then what do you do with your bees when well, it gets, well, or well, the schedule when it gets colder? So as things wind down, usually the last bit of pollen and nectar is from um, goldenrod. And we can have, you know, sometimes there can be a significant influx of, of pollen and nectar from those plants. But, but um, the, by the late fall, the hive, the colony has already decreased its numbers in the interest of reducing sort of the overhead going into the winter. So small crew means less honey consumption um, over the winter. So it's a, the colony will be much smaller than it was at its peak, say, around June. Um, what we're doing as a beekeeper is r really, hopefully we've carefully managed the health of the hive, in particular the furrow mite load. So we are testing uh, as frequently as once a month to see how many mites per hundred bees are in the hive, and based on the results of those tests, treating for mites with there's a, a number of different uh, ways we can treat for mites, but keeping those um, predators uh, under control in the hive, and keeping the bees, making sure they're well fed. Um, so that they go into winter with good health and good stores of honey and pollen. And um, then as winter rolls around, we're, you know, wrapping the hives, insulating the hives, sometimes tar paper and sometimes more sophisticated um, wraps to keep them warm and cozy over the winter. And then we have to sort of um, cross our fingers and wait for for warmer weather, you can't really uh, physically get into the hive over the winter because the chilling effect of that cold air would be damaging. Although we do now have good data collection devices, so we've got actually thermal and humidity sensors inside some of our hives. So oh, okay. it's really great over the winter. We can we can look at that information and see what's going on. So the, so then you're just waiting for it to. Winter to pass, and exactly, and, they're, and, they're, and so, so this last winter is it was it was it uh, was it worse than you know when it's colder like that? Well, those those uh, minus twenty six days are tough. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, and and uh, we'll see. It's hard, you know. Now we're into this. I said we're into the maybe the more vulnerable period of time because if things 
start to get ramped up in, ter in terms of expanding the population, and then we have a period of cold or wet weather, that can put a lot of stress on the hive, and you can lose a colony that has yeah. begun to expand its numbers but doesn't have the food coming in the front door. And so that's when, as a beekeeper, you have to be really attentive, be prepared to provide syrup and pollen patties to bridge over those, you know, oh, okay. dirt. Yeah. Well, yeah, at least you can do something about it then. Yes. So that's good, yeah. Yes. Um, I don't know what our time is. I can go on and on talking about um, what is that? Like 10 minutes. Okay. <clears throat> I always forget to check, look at the clock, and then I don't have any sense of uh, time. Um, what When you get to the point of um, making our, making the honey so so that you can consume the honey as a person, what's the process there? Well, so what we do um, when we decide to take steal some honey from the bees is we take the top boxes off. They're called supers, and they're, um, they're individual frames, like hang file folders, really, um, with wax cells on either side. And we bring those in, and we cut the caps off of the cells containing the honey using a, either a hot knife or a cold knife. And then we put the, these frames into a centrifuge. It's called an extractor, and it spins the honey out of the frames, and that collects at the bottom of this big stainless steel barrel. And um, when the sufficient honey is built up in the bottom of that, we put a bucket underneath there with a screen to uh, small enough to pick up all the body parts and little chunks of dirt or whatever. And, and so we open the tap, run it through the sieve, and um, that's the end of the process. The beauty of the honey is that at uh, 16 to 18% moisture content, it's um, sort of self-preserving, will last for years and hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah. It'll last that long? Yes, oh, yes. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, it at those low moisture contents, it won't support bacterial activity, and and in, yeah, so it'll last really forever. I, I think they found honey in the in the in the tombs in Egypt that was, you know, thousands of years old, so mm -hmm. still edible, palatable. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I um, well. I've done a lot of uh, things where, where I thought like this is kind of seems impossible at first, you know, mm -hmm. and then and you start getting into it, and then it's easier than you thought. Yeah, little like, baby uh, steps. Yeah, I made I made uh, beer when I was in high school. Uh huh. And it was like, <laughs> this is, you know, it seemed like how do you even do that? And because um, there wasn't a lot of beer making. Uh, you know, people were, it wasn't a big fad at that time. As right. Much. This was right. in the 70s. But a friend of mine, we just like read some stuff about it. Mm -hmm. and we, we, we bought malt, malt extract in cans and, um, you know, we didn't actually malt the, you know, the barley. Right. So, you know, it was just like cooking in a way. 
Yes. But it was kind of it was kind of amazing that we 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 did it, and then like our first batch came out, right? You know, we fermented and we made beer, and it was like, oh, it's, it's, it seems like it seems magical in a way. It is magical. Figure, yeah. Figure, figure that kind yeah. of stuff out. Yeah. So I would, yeah, the, the I would be a little intimidated as far as bees, I guess. For do you do you um as far as uh. uh Working with them, do you what do you use? What equipment do you use to keep from getting stung by them? Or well, um, so our one of our main defenses is a smoker, right? So it turns out that um, because the bees are creatures of the forest, that smoke is a signal that they're they're likely to lose their home, and so when the what the smoke causes the bees to do is they they'll um, consume honey. They'll drop down into the hive and consume honey because if they have to leave home, that's their only bank account is the honey that's in the in the comb. And so, and a bee that has a full load of honey in her stomach is a pretty passive bee. So, by applying a little bit of smoke to the hive, they become much more passive. In addition, the guard bees are their vision is obscured, and so that. Um, is also uh, an important defense. So before we open the hive up, we always apply a little bit of smoke at the entrance, and then when we lift the top up, a little bit of smoke on top. And usually most of the bees will drop down into the hive and actually start consuming honey. Okay. And uh, and then I, I, I really prefer to work the bees with as little uh, protective equipment as possible just because it's easier. It's really uncomfortable, particularly in the summertime, to be wearing a veil and a suit and gloves and everything like that. Um, um, and also, um, it, it lets me be a little more sensitive to what's going on with the bees. If I know that I make a mistake, um, they remind me by stinging me. And so I, it actually is... Uh, and it increases my skill and care and, and attending to them. But there are times when either I'm doing something disruptive enough or they're in a cranky enough mood where I will wear a veil just so that I'm mm -hmm. not getting, taking too many stings. So sometimes you can, you can perceive their crankiness then? Yeah, you really can. Yeah, I mean, they, uh, you know, and it's these are learned skills. I mean, you just like your cat, you knew when your cat mm -hmm. was upset about the, chickens because probably you yeah. you were attentive to his her um yeah, vocalization a, uh, yeah with, yeah it's amazing with animals you can just see their face and in their face you mm -hmm. know you get you get to know that right and bees are kind of i'm there at super organisms so over time you get to understand what sort of signals I mean, and actually, if you think about it, there um, th for bees in particular, sting is suicide. So they, the the honeybee that stings you, that's the end of her life. And so they really wanted, they would like to give you any possible signal mm -hmm. to avoid oh. uh, stinging you. And so if you're attentive, usually there's plenty of signals. Oh yeah, that's something I don't, I don't, you know, I have a little knowledge about you know and i never really looked into it more so with honeybees they when they sting you they they die that's right the yeah they leave okay. their stinger and actually the venom sac and the muscles and everything is actually left when they depart and they they'll die shortly after that now mm -hmm. unlike wasps yellow jackets they can sting you multiple times and they mm -hmm. don't 
they don't bear the same consequences. But it is, and so it's useful to remember that in round honeybees that they really will will try to give you every possible defensive signal before attacking because they pay sort mm -hmm. of the ultimate price for that sting. Yeah, that's yeah. I guess that I don't know I always feel kind of ignorant around all, all this. You know what? So I don't know wasps from a, a from a yellow jacket, from a honeybee, from a, you know I mm -hmm. don't know the difference when I see them, mm -hmm. and so and I know that there's there are different ways of the defense. So it's always kind of I kind of wish I knew more sometimes, but mm -hmm. that's so if if you're if you're just well, sometimes I've I've been riding. I've noticed I was riding my bike. This happened like two years in a row. I was riding my bike through the park um, in like around September, right? And I was stung by something. What is that? Do you know what that would likely be? Could that be a honeybee? Well, it certainly could be a honeybee. But that time of year, the most likely would be a yellow jacket. That's the time of year when they're most aggressive, and. Um, and also the fact that it, it, unless you are in the neighborhood of a hive, uh, it's really unlikely that a honeybee would be in, would expend the energy to sting you sort of randomly riding mm -hmm. your bike. Whereas yeah. with a wasp, you could run into a wasp. And as I say, there's not too much consequence to the wasp for stinging you. So just you're kind of showing up uh, in their space. Yeah, run, yeah, running into it. Yeah. 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 So which which ones leave a, a stinger in you? That's, Only the honeybee. So right? honeybee is what leaves a stinger in, right. in in you when they sting you. Right. Okay. And actually, it's interesting. While the venom, the honeybee venom and the wasp venom are similar, they're actually distinctly different chemicals, mm -hmm. neurochemicals, um, p different pH, uh, different makeup. And people that you can be allergic, you can have an immune response to like wasp venom. And not honeybee venom, and vice versa. Right, so they're yeah. not. Um, well, they're both painful stings. They're not the same. Mm -hmm. I feel like that was in a plot of some movie I saw. I can't remember what it was. <laughs> the difference between those um, wasp stings and bee stings, and it was a plot point. No, I can't remember the movie. You've been stung though so often by your, your oh, bees. Oh yes, yeah. So you get stung often, and yeah, yeah. Probably, you know, I'll probably get stung twenty, thirty times this year. Who knows? I mean, but you kind of get used to it a little bit. Yeah, and actually, the immune response is such that I mean, it's actually better to get stung more often than not. So if there's a big gap between, like, even over the winter, uh, the typically if you haven't been stung. Over six months, the, those first stings of the of the spring season, you'll get more reaction, and then that'll taper off over time. Actually, I got stung in January. We opened the hives up to do some work, and they were a little. The girls were a little cranky, and I think I got about five stings in a really short order. And remarkably, I had really no no reaction to the stings. Oh, so. so yeah, so part of the oh, what's unpleasant is the re, is your immune system reaction, right? Yes, the, the and for stings. some people that can be a really serious. I mean, that right, can, yeah. your, the immune system can sort of over respond, and you can go into anaphylaxis. But, mm -hmm. um, yeah. Okay, I guess we're uh, we're we're going to move on to our our, our psychic test okay. segment of the show. All right. Um, here's a coin 
All right. Um, you you can pick a heads or tails side and 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 concentrate on that. And uh, I'm going to try and uh, guess what you're thinking. All right. Ready? Are you yes. Okay. yes um, how about um, tails? Um, I'm really sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was a good try, though. But, it was yeah, valiant. Uh, it, it's. Um, well, we'll move on to a more difficult one. These okay, all right. Cards. So, yeah, usually I I get the heads or tails one right. Uh, my but my psychic abilities have been slipping probably because of our we we haven't uh, we've had some time off. Um, you haven't been doing your psychic exercises, right? Yes. Right. Okay. Um, so you got, you have one there. I have one. Oh, okay. Yes. Is it um, circle? It is. It is. See? Okay. Yeah. Nicely done. Nicely done. Okay. And then here's a, a, some a deck of uh, cards with uh, cocktail recipes. And uh, if you, if you can pick one out, you either ra random or one you're one you're, you're interested in. <laughs> uh, hmm. Okay, well, yeah, I'm going to focus on this one. I'm going to try to transmit this right directly to your prefrontal lobe. Uh, okay. Um, uh, margarita? Uh, okay. What? Do you want to know the yeah, answer? Yeah, it's just, a Bellini. Oh, Bellini. Yeah. yeah. Do you know the Bellini? No, I've heard of it, but I, I, I can't even tell you what's in, the, in it. Itsy, bitsy, teensy, weensy. Yeah. It's a peach nectar, lemon juice, grenadine, and then crushed ice and champagne. That's pretty elaborate. It is, yeah. yeah peach nectar. Um, okay, and for the last one, just think of something out of uh, culture or some category, and, and tell me the category, and I'll try to um, guess. Okay. Let's particular. Um. Okay, um, a style of food. Style of foods, food. So some type of a dish or something. No, like that? just even a category. Just a category of food. Category. Um, dessert. <laughs> <laughs> Rice pudding. Pudding. Oh, nice, yeah. nice, good, good choices. I'm not. I, I'm never far from thinking of rice pudding. So I might have. Here, it was. If I'm wrong, let me get it. Guess again. Okay, wrong. you can go okay. again. Yes. Um, pasta. No. All good choices. Okay. No, no I was thinking of Thai. Ah, Thai, Thai food. Yeah. See, it's been way too long since I had Thai food. Actually, I don't know why. Um, but uh, well, maybe we can change that today. Yeah, I wouldn't mind. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for uh, yeah, thanks for having me and uh, guest hosting the podcast. It's nice to talk to you. My pleasure. Okay. Thank, thank you, Randy. All right. Thank you.